0: We need to have everybody gradually moving along on this trajectory to not need the testing specialist anymore, but you know, you might not ever get there. You might get there. And if you do get there, that doesn't mean that testers are out of work because believe me, there are plenty of other places that still need software testers.
1: Welcome to AB Testing Podcast, your modern testing podcast. Your hosts, Alan and Brent, will be here to guide you through topics on testing, leadership, agile, and anything else that comes to mind. Now, on with hey the again, show, everyone. I'm Alan. I'm Brent.
2: I should unmute. And we have a guest. We do.
1: Say hi, Kristen. Hello. We have Kristen Jackvoney on the podcast this week. We're going to talk about all kinds of testing stuff, but we should i should just let you plug yourself so maybe we should start with this so Kristen, you're here for a good reason to talk about something very exciting and important you've done recently but just say introduce yourself and talk about your your thing and we'll go from there
0: okay um so i am here to talk about the book that i published in december and the name of that book is the complete software tester concept skills and strategies for high quality testing and it aims to be sort of a one-stop shop to, to help you with all kinds of testing things, manual testing, automated testing, API testing, testing strategy, performance testing, mobile testing. It's it's really, that's why it's called the complete software tester. So um, I'm really excited about it. It's the culmination of a couple of years worth of work. So, yeah, I'm here to, to talk about it some more and answer your questions. Cool. And I have
1: some, I have plenty of questions about it. I think Brent does, too. I'm not sure where to start. So there's a couple places I could start. One is, well, one, I, I, I skimmed through the book. You're right. It is complete. I've always been a fan of the testing books that were more broad. And some stay very broad and are not pragmatic. And the ones that are pragmatic are about one thing. And the thing that's great about yours, it's, It's really cool. Enough information to kind of understand, oh, that's what you do there. Is that fair from your side? Because I have a a statement after that.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, And that was a lot of my motivation for writing the book in the first place. Um, I discovered software testing sort of late in life. I was almost 40 when I discovered that software testing was a thing and that I wanted to do it. And I was so excited about it and I wanted to learn as much as I could. And I had a lot of trouble finding the information that I needed. And a lot of times, if you don't know what you don't know, then you have no way to ask questions about it. And, you know, just a a perfect example would be something like, um, you know, uh, working with a development team and, and wanting to make a change to the code. And the developer says to you, well, we'll just pull down the repo and make some changes and then do a PR. It's like what what is what does that even mean like what's a repo what what's a pr and and so that so the book is really aiming to kind of give you like a a starting point for a whole lot of different things so that then people can go on from the book and know what kinds of questions they need to ask to learn further
1: which gets to my point which isn't the intent of your book but it's the way I'm going to use it when I give copies away so You have a section in your book where you talk about a couple of pages about what will we still need software testers, which I want to go to in a minute because I think you're largely right. But you may have heard the story I've told a few times on the podcast when I was coaching a team at Unity that did not have dedicated software testers on how to write developers how to do testing. The VP would ask me, how is the dev team doing at testing? And I say they do all the tests they know how to do had unconscious incompetence they could test the stuff they could think of but they just didn't really think of the things you outline in your book and i think this is actually while not what you intended i think this is an excellent book to get maybe it was you can tell me this is going to be an excellent book to give developers to help them understand all the different ways they can test the thing they're building
0: yes Absolutely. Um, and I think maybe on my uh, description of it on Amazon I might even say that, that that software developers I'm not sure it's been a while since I wrote it now but but yeah, um, th- that's something that we've been working on at uh, paylocity, which is the company where I work um, because we've we've been working on an initiative to really have the whole team own quality and developers can get very nervous about that what what I need to test like what does that even mean? And so, yeah, so this would be an excellent tool for that.
1: So maybe, uh, so good. I'm, I'm glad you feel that way too. I think it's a great way because Brent, actually, I don't even know what Brent does, but I work on <laughs> a lot with a lot of teams that don't have dedicated testers, but it doesn't mean they don't do testing. They do a lot of testing. Why do we still need dedicated testers?
0: I, I think there are, there are a few reasons. Um, one is that teams change. So you might have a team that, is just is working, you know, swimmingly. There, there's no dedicated testers. Everybody knows exactly what to do. Everybody works cooper- cooperatively together, but then somebody new comes onto the team, and that really changes the whole team dynamic. So you might need to have somebody focused on testing at that point to kind of help that that new person acclimate. Another thing is that um, the uh, technology changes. Um, so Things that like, let's say, for example, you've got a team and, and they're doing a whole bunch of stuff with Azure, and then they decide that they need to lift and shift their entire platform over to AWS instead. Well, that's going to require different testing. And so while the team is figuring out how to do that, having a dedicated tester could be something that would help with the with the transition. So, yeah, I think those are, those are some of the big reasons.
2: So can I ask a clara- clarification on that one? because what i heard you mention is dedicated tester but and your two scenarios were ephemeral in nature was that by design
0: um ephemeral as in i'm not um, providing like a concrete e- example of something no. to be done. so
2: so so for example i'm going to distinguish like your your aws example i'm going to mm-hmm. distinguish between a dedicated tester versus Dedicated testing is needed, and we need people to do that um, in an ephemeral fashion, meaning it's going to be time boxed, it's not going to continue. Did you make that distinction on purpose? Is there there a role, a a place, or do you summarize the places where you feel a dedicated tester in a more permanent scenario?
0: Hmm. Okay. Yeah, I think... I guess, I guess my feeling is that, that a lot of teams just aren't mature enough to be able to handle all of the testing without that person that thinks about how to test things. Um, and I think that's the, the skill set that testers really bring is that testers love thinking about what can go wrong with this. What are all of the really horrible things that could happen, and how can we test for those? Um, I think that developers can do that, and certainly developers can be trained to do that. But most teams, you know, they're they're trying to deal with tech debt, they're trying to churn out features and and meet the business requirements that are put upon them. Um, they might not have the the time or you know, they or even the skills to do that. So, I mean, I think it's like a, you know, there's sort of a a testing nirvana where everybody understands exactly what you know what needs to be done and how to do it. And but how many of us are really going to get there? Some of us, maybe maybe not all of us, at least not right now.
1: Yeah, I, I think that's a good way to see it. It's it's a it's not exactly what we've talked about with a test coach, but kind of somebody there to kind of help people. along, And I've been in that role before myself and there is value there. So yes. Oh, by the way, and it's my mistake. I actually just kind of flipped through the forward again where of your book, where you actually do explicitly say this book could be for developers
2: too. So
0: um, good. See, I I didn't remember. You didn't
2: even
1: know I asked a dumb question.
2: (laughs) Yeah, no, I, so that's one thing I adore. I, I do think, So, like, I, I, uh, we're not doing live streams, so the podcast won't see this. But one of the questions I wrote down is, uh, okay, I wanted to explore sort of this idea around the tester mindset, Mm -hmm. and I, I think I, I, I think Chris and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I think you'll say, yeah, there is a tester mindset, but not in the way that is often described when those terms are used. That that in other words there i don't think you would argue uh that this tester mindset is exclusive to testers
1: right yeah
2: great right? it, it devs can be trained and as alan just pointed out it's in the forward um and then in your last your last answer to the question you mentioned that it's going to be it's going to be based on the maturity of the team and you also mentioned you're a huge proponent Well, i I don't think you said huge, but a proponent of whole team. Yes. Right. And so uh, a dedicated tester specialist, I think you're going to say, you're going to argue, Hey, it's going to be based off business needs. Mm -hmm. And sometimes you're going to need it uh, because the business needs it because they have a gap that needs to be filled. Right. But Mm -hmm. I think you would, well, you tell me, right. Instead of me, Constantly telling you your words. How about I ask you a question? Um, how about that, Brent? Yeah, that 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 might make for a better interview. Long term, where do you see it going?
0: I think, well, one thing that that has made me so happy um, over the last couple of years, uh, working where I do is to see the quality of software testers that we have been hiring. And those those testers have a lot of coding skills and they have a lot of i guess i'll call it non-traditional testing skills for the lack of a better word but like they know about security testing they know about performance testing and and so what i'm seeing is that we're we're starting to develop what i will call a full stack tester that's a, a tester who you know, understands accessibility testing, security testing, load testing, they know how to help shepherd a release through on release night. Um, They can go in there and make changes to the code when they need to, like if, if there's like an accessibility item that that needs to be worked on like oh you know we're missing a tag here or something like that they can go in and they can make those changes they can put together entire frameworks. Um, So I'm imagining that that sort of what's going to happen is is like a like emerging, where the testers are getting better and better and better at more technical and more development related things whereas the developers are getting better and better and better at the testing things um so so that's what i would imagine for the future but i do not have a crystal ball and uh things things could change radically who knows
2: go ahead al no i want your reaction
1: <laughs> brett because
2: oh I, you know i wholly agree with yes. this <laughs> right right uh and as a matter of fact i would say in general what we did here at Microsoft kind of followed that pattern, right? you you merge it, then then you still have to sort of get stuff done uh, in this new reality. And I think over time, um, people generalize, right? It, it's so so Kristen's a listener. Uh, that's that's what I've been informed. I don't know how many episodes she's listened to, but I assume you're aware of the modern testing principles that we've. Okay. I guess based off of this uh, principle, number seven, uh, this is the one that sort of Alan's question line of questioning has been on. Where did we get that wrong?
0: I I don't think you did get it wrong. Um, I will definitely say that, um, a few years ago, and I can't remember how many years ago it was that I first became acquainted with the modern testing principles. I was reading through them and I was, you know, number one, number two, I'm like, yeah, yeah, this is great. I love this. And I got to seven and I was like, <gasps> like this, this is, oh my God, they're talking about getting rid of testers. And, and it took me a long time and it took me listening to your podcast too, to, to really think about it. And I realized that um, the wrong thing to do would be to read this and say, we don't need testers anymore because <laughs> then you're, you're going to wind up with, with applications that suck. Like um, what, what we need is we need to have everybody gradually moving along on this trajectory to not need the testing specialist anymore, but, you know, you might. Not ever get there. You might get there, and if you do get there, that doesn't mean that testers are out of work. Because believe me, there are plenty of other places that still need software testers. I know because every time I interact with an application, you know, I'm filling out a form to order something or whatever, and I discover the pop-up doesn't work right, or or I can't get to the button I need to click. Like we're going to need testers for a long, long time.
1: You've seen the light on this, and. You get it exactly right. And Brent knew this. He asked a very leading question because everything you talked about before described that the principle seven says it may reduce or eliminate the need for dedicated testing specialists because it may. And a lot of times it does, but what we really want to do there is get rid of a dedicated specialist as a bottleneck. And at the point where you're there to advise and look into some of the, the areas that even a good developer Tester may not get to uh, being there for those things. There's there's plenty to do there, and I'm a big fan of the uh, of that sort of role. And the, I've just flipped it a little bit farther. Like we have, I like think I mentioned on the podcast. I have a small team of people who function as quality coaches, much like, much like you. Know, instead of being dedicated on one team, they bounce around a little bit. Sometimes they consult for really a really little mini consultant team. Sometimes they consult for an hour, half a day, a day, one person's been embedded on a team for 3 months to help them bootstrap some automation, just whatever they need to help them build that testing knowledge. Maybe instead of consulting I can send them copies of your book. Hmm. <laughs> but yeah, I think everything you've talked about says that you have seen past the words on a page on the page which can be scary around principle number 7 and actually have figured out what that means in practice. It's not scary and it's not a definitive like we're getting rid of testers. It's you just actually make it so good at making software, quality software from the beginning that dedicating someone to testing all the time would be a waste.
2: I absolutely believe that a tester specialist today, a traditional tester specialist, if they invest in what we are, if they invest in understanding and what we're talking about in the modern testing principles. They will not only be excited about the removal of or the potential removal of a testing specialist. What I've observed in the industry, every time we we go through the cycle and we improve, that individual becomes a lot more valuable. And I've said, actually, Kristen, you just brought up, you, you believe that there's an eventual merging of these things. Have you actually observed that yet in practice?
0: Well, I have a fun story to tell you yep. about uh, one of the teams at my company, and I'm going to give the shout out to the Core Platforms team, just in case they're listening today. Uh, so this was a team of developers. They do, as their name suggests, they do a lot of sort of back-end stuff. They they deal with caching and with um, API governance and with uh, uh, messaging, that kind of thing. And so they... They had formed this team, they really wanted a software tester, and it just was not in the cards budget wise, they were told no, you can't have a tester. So my my role at the company is really to help all of the teams adopt quality practices and so I met with them. And they said, well, what are we gonna do? Well, one of the other things that they wanted to work on was eliminating silos because they've got a lot of really smart people on their team. Each one of them was an expert in one of these different areas. And they really wanted to make sure that it wasn't just one person, they were they were all experts so that you know someone could go on vacation and not get called up in Hawaii. Hey, our caching system isn't working correctly, can you help us? So I suggested that they form testing buddies so that each one of them as the feature expert and the one that was doing most of the dev work would be paired with one of the other people and that person would do the testing. And in the process of doing the testing, you know, not only would they learn about being a better tester, but they would also learn about the other product that they were testing. And so they tried that out and that worked really well for them um, and then the other thing, the other idea that they came up with on their own was they decided that they needed to have a test application, one that was different from what's running in production, that they could try out all kinds of things on sort of like a sandbox to say, Let, let's run all of our tests against this and, and see what happens when we, when we make those changes. And so they've been working on that, and they're really excited about that. And they've come up with some other testing frameworks to, to for observational purposes to see things like you know are they getting any message lost when the messages are going out so um i'm really excited and happy for them about the the innovation that they've had together and so now they're proving they they don't need a tester they can solve these problems themselves
2: yeah that's that's a fantastic story it's it's essentially one of the things that what is it um necessity is the mother of invention right if you if you set the stage in a way like you told the story like no you're not getting this Esther and no you are going to continue to have the expectation of high quality outputs right well then you figure out how to solve it the the other thing i was trying to get to is we talked about you 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 predicted yeah you predicted that over time you see sort of Test becoming more devish and then dev becoming more testish. Yeah. And I'm wondering, have you have you experienced any sort of ecosystem of that occurring? I have. I'm just curious. I have a question on that. I'm curious if you have experienced that yet.
0: Well, one one thing that I've seen, um, we had a push this year to get involved in accessibility testing. Um, that's something that's very important. The company where I work, we we do payroll software and and we um and you know mm-hmm. time cards and things like that. We want to make sure that all of our users are gonna be able to use the application. And so um, teams started doing some testing, and we had a group of three testers who got very interested in accessibility testing. And as they were learning about it, they discovered just how easy it is to solve some of those accessibility problems, like to put in like an alt image tag, or um, to to put in um, other descriptions, or to change the level of headers. Um, apparently, that's important for screen readers. So as they were learning these things, they also realized these are simple changes that we know how to make. So they were going in to to their team's software and they were making all of the changes and doing the pull request and getting the approval and getting those changes pushed through. So I I think that that, that's sort of the tip of the iceberg. I think we're going to continue to see more things like that as we go forward.
2: Nice. And then so
0: I think the second part of your question was the devs becoming more like testers. Um, We actually had... One Dev, we we switched over recently to using Cypress for for UI automation, and now we're moving into API automation with Cypress as well. And uh, we had one developer who was so excited about Cypress that he switched over to become a software test engineer instead. So I, I think you know we'll see some of that as well.
1: Well, that I'll just say this, and I can have Jason Huggins yell at me later. That doesn't happen with Selenium. <laughs>
2: I don't know that I don't know that we'll inspire Huggins to come and try to yell at us again. Um, that so that was fun. We, I was just thinking about the same thing. No. So one of the things that that I've observed, Kristen, and is that when you push what I've observed in in my prior histories is that testers becoming dev even though they don't have sort of the history on like the the o of one algorithms and and such I find I have found and it may be subjective bias I, that's what I was testing I have found that they end up being superior developers
0: Oh yeah I was get, just going to say I've seen I've seen that before too I've seen um uh, testers switch over to be developers and uh, contribute greatly to projects. Um, the other thing that I've seen that I really like is testers who switch over to be managers, and those managers really understand what it means to have the whole team on quality. Um, so here's here's another example from uh, from my workplace. Um, uh, someone I worked with, hello, Monica, was uh, a tester and she became a manager of a team and she instituted a, sort of a process right before the team releases. They all do exploratory testing together, all of them, developers and testers are all doing that exploratory testing. And so what happened with that was the testers were teaching the developers here are the things that you need to look for. When you're testing and then the developers were also learning more about the product too because sometimes the developers can kind of get involved like with one little section of code and they're not really looking at the whole picture so they were really seeing the big picture and so all of them working together found great bugs before they released and so yeah i think uh that testers make great managers
2: i definitely think that Putting the tester in in a manager role if you're doing if you're gonna go with a unified engineering model, they're gonna think about the whole system end to end.
1: Yeah, testers, people who have spent time in testings tend to be more systems thinkers. Not universally true, but they that's my experience in general. One thing we've talked about a lot here, not directly, but I'm gonna go ahead and call it out, is you know you've been in testing since two thousand and nine. So I think long enough where maybe you caught the tail end of the testers versus developers. But there's none of that when you're talking about. It. And that's I like to think in most companies, although from what I read on Twitter, it's not true. but uh, I think at least a lot of companies, maybe most companies are past that' it's a collaboration. I think that helps. But I wanted to talk about a tweet that I did this week, nothing to do with your book, but it, I want you to tell a story from your book based on this. So, I ran across yet another, I won't even say where I got it because I'll probably piss somebody off, but yet another complaint about manual versus testing, manual versus automated testing and labels, labels, labels. So I tweeted, the coolest thing that happens when developers own all of their own testing is that all the arguments around manual versus automated versus exploratory versus whatever all go away because it's all just testing. Mm -hmm. And uh, before I have you tell Hope remember the story you told from this chapter in your book. One of the thing again is isn't we're having we're having Kristen on the podcast. Cause she can talk about the book. We're not like we, we don't we're not we're gonna we're gonna talk up your book because it's good. But the one <laughs> of the things I like it, and Brent, you would like it too because you have the attention span of of this piece of cloth right here. And the book, you want to sit down, and read a chapter of the book, you can be done like in. 30 seconds, a minute or two, depending on the chapter. It's all little bite sized chunks. So chapter like 564, I'm making this up, um, (laughs) is on the whole manual versus automated debate. And I like the way you just call bullshit on it. So do you remember the story from there? Do you want to share that?
0: Um, Yeah, I'm not sure if it's a a story, but... um,
1: Well, it's not really a story, but the anecdotes you shared, like, yeah. The
0: three software testers, Marsha, Jan, and Z. Yeah, yeah. And then... Yeah. (laughs) All right. So I actually, I have the book open here so that I can uh, remember all the details. Um, Marsha is the software developer in test. So she's very proud of her automation skills and she sees, you know, the feature that that's coming down the pike and she says, oh, I know just what to do with this. And so she writes a whole bunch of automation and makes sure that, you know, everything's running and you know the the feature released and all all of her tests are running and passing and isn't it awesome? But she didn't pay a whole lot of attention to the acceptance criteria, so as a result, she missed one really important use case, and now there are end users who are seeing errors when they use the application because she completely missed that. Um, and so then um, we've got Cindy, who's the manual tester. Cindy read all of the requirements very, very carefully, and she came up with a a very elaborate test plan um, where she's manually testing everything but because she's doing everything manually she can't keep up with the frequent software releases that the team is doing so you know the team is saying okay well i just i pushed some code here um can you check it out and it's like a day and a half before she's done with, with all of the testing and the developers want feedback right away they want to know did i break something i don't want to know a day and a half from now i want to know now so then we We've got Jan. Jan's there in the middle, and she does both. Jan is reading the requirements, the acceptance criteria. She is interacting with the application to really understand how it works as a system and then she's creating automated testing that is going to be sensible and is going to reflect all of the acceptance criteria and all, you know, the all of the use cases that she's discovered. And so as a result that means that the developers can make the changes and push the code and know right away if they've broken anything.
1: So which one should you be? Should you be a manual tester or an automated tester? (laughs) Marsha, Marsha, Marsha.
0: You should be jammed. (laughs) Another thing I say in the chapter too is that, like, I mean, what does automated mean really? Like if somebody writes a script, like if I I need a whole bunch of like uh, users in my system to test with, and I write a script to like put them all in the system really fast. Does that make me an automated tester now? I mean, I I made a tool or I did a process and, you know, and then like, if I'm creating test automation and I push a button to run the test automation, am I now a manual tester? Like these distinctions are not important. What really right. matters.
1: That's exactly is that it. The,
0: the what's getting tested is what should be getting tested.
1: On one hand, I, I get the argument, like we stop calling it manual testing, and it, they're absolutely right.
2: Yeah. You no, know, the, the problem with the automated and manual discussion, in my humble opinion, is the industry is moving in a place where again a lot of this stuff is shifting to development. I grew up in my career, I had I've had multiple people like I am a manual tester and i love this job and i am never changing really what if the industry changes to put you in a how about now I, got, right and so what what i see is a lot of these discussions are really my sense of it i'm a data scientist now i i have not done a scientific study on this but my sense of it is no it's more of a a justification or a rationalization of this is the value we had but honestly it's no different than in the traditional way, the justification we've always had. Like like I, I remember a conversation I had with James James Whitaker and we we're talking about what's the ROIF test, I, I He and I had this over lunch and he's like, oh, well, if you want to know what the ROIF test is, just get ready your testers and then you'll see. <laughs> well, you know what? 20 years ago, that would have been clear. Today, a lot of companies, you know what? I I think his statement probably still kind of describes it because you got in today's world, you got rid of all your testers and nothing changed that might indicate that. No, 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 that's, that wasn't, things have changed. Right. In in terms of, in terms of the labels, I actually think there should be no such thing as automated or manual tester Mm -hmm. automated and manual testing. uh, Even
1: even that's hard. So, let me take that and build on that and actually talk about a twist on this this last story from the book. Like if I push a button in my manual, if I write a script to generate stuff, or am I an automation engineer? There are, and this is a rant that I've made before and I'll make it again. There are hundreds, I would say thousands, tens of thousands, I don't know how many t- test automation engineers, and they are happy with their job of writing automated selenium tests all day long. The data show from Nicole Forrester's work at Accelerate that developers owning their own automated tests produce higher quality software. Does that mean testers are out of work? No, because this thing you described, like writing a script to generate, like, oh, I want to generate a bunch of names to test with. I want to generate a bunch of input strings to put here or whatever. That... Is a more, for me, that is a more valuable use of any sort of coding knowledge than writing a gazillion. Is that a number, Brent? A gazillion? Yeah. Than writing a gazillion Selenium tests. It's what uh, Merritt talks about, like exploratory automated testing. We're going to use the tools to help us get to a state where maybe we can learn something interesting about the software. And that is the kind of thing I want people who are doing dedicated software testing to be. And ideally, developers do it too. But that's where the magic happens. You people, and again, I'm not talking to you because nobody, nobody who writes Selenium tests all day and loves it is listening to this podcast because they've already, (laughs) they've already turned us off and deleted us from the internet years ago, but there's something there. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That, that reminds me, oh, I just uh, totally spaced on what it was that I wanted to say. Um, Oh, hey,
1: Brent, she's one of us. We do this all the time.
0: (laughs) Oh, it's related to, oh, I know what it was. Okay. So at my company, we hire what, what I consider to be full stack software testers. So those software testers need to know how to find bugs. And they also need to know how to write automation that could help you know guard against regressions. Um, So we actually have a a two-step process that it took us a little while to refine this, but the very first thing we do when we have a software tester, you know, come in and and be interested in in interviewing with us, um, we give them an application. It's a buggy application. It's got UI bugs, it's got API bugs. And we just say to them, find all the bugs you can in this application and just write up a bug report in just whatever style you would want to do to communicate to us what what the bugs are. And then we have a scoring rubric and we we you know measure you know did they find you know one point bugs did they find three point bugs and it just it never ceases to amaze me the inability of these people that can write selenium tests but they can't find the bugs there was there was one because they, they, they
1: don't know anything about testing
0: yes yes exactly 13 years of testing experience we had a candidate who could only find three bugs in the application it's just it's amazing um but yeah i mean that's really the most important thing is that mindset to to be able to say what can go wrong here what could i try here
2: so yeah
1: yeah, I don't know. Yeah, anyway, same, same rant repeated. Uh, but it <laughs> reminds me a little bit. And at Microsoft, I was, I was, of course, at Microsoft for a long time. For many years there, I was called was called an as app interviewer, as appropriate, which I was at the end of the loop. I was the person who decided, mm-hmm. are they a good Microsoft fit? Can they do the job? And sometimes it was just selling them. If it was somebody who'd done really well on the on the interview loop. And sometimes it was, sometimes it was breaking the tie, kind of figuring out. And those were fun, too. And sometimes, mm-hmm. actually, if they if they wouldn't even come to me if they, were, if they were no hires down the road. But one thing that kind of blew me away, it's not similar to testing. These weren't all testing roles. But and Microsoft, at least at the time, it's probably still true. Most of their hiring has been right out of college. Do a lot of hiring of entry level and then grow them through the system. One thing that was interesting, like here, like and I want to, the topic I want to get to around this is I am not a computer science major. Neither is Kristen. In fact, we have a very similar major, but we'll get to that in a moment, is I would be the one interviewing these MIT folks and, and Stanford or, and sometimes not always that prestigious, but these very well-educated people who were geniuses at the algorithm and computer science level, but did not have the ability to think their way outside of a bag. High intelligence, low wisdom for you D&D players. Mm-hmm. And it was I see a parallel there. And like, I would say even someone without testing experience who kind of could see the forest for the trees would be able to find, you know, they could fake their way through that part. But the fact that we have people in testing positions doing testing all day, but they're not really doing testing does not surprise me. They would fail miserably there.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and, and that's, that's another interesting thing about the, the testing profession is that software testing is not taught in college. I deal with a lot of um, new college grads because we do a lot of recruiting and, and we recruit them as soft as software engineers. And I get to spend a whole day with them and teach them about software testing. And one of the things I do is I ask them, what did you learn about, about software testing? What kinds of software testing did you do? And generally the answer is we learned how to write unit tests and that's it. They didn't learn how to, to think about anything else. And, and I start my day with them by just uh, showing them a little picture. It's just a field, an empty field and a button. And I say, how would you test this? And you know, sometimes it it's fun to watch them because sometimes they'll go to write like sequel injection, you know, like right away. But um, but sometimes they'll they'll start to think about, oh, well, you know, well, what if we had too many characters in the field? And what if we didn't have enough characters in the field? And I say, OK, well, what if, what if it's a phone number? And then they start thinking about all the different things that they could test with the phone number. And, and-, and
1: hopefully they realize that phone numbers are different lengths in different countries.
0: Yes absolutely yes and they they usually do come up with that so that's good but but yeah I mean th- and that's another reason why I wrote the book is because nobody's teaching software testing no. in college
1: right and and I actually don't maybe there should there shouldn't be I do not believe there should be a software testing degree there should be a software testing course that you know computer science is, is a lot about, it may not cover that, but if there's a software engineering degree at a college, definitely should have testing you and I and Brent, excuse us while we alienate you, but maybe Brent, I don't know how many people, you know, who studied music in college and found their way into tech, but there's of the three people on this podcast that is true for two of them. What was your path? So tell me how you got from music into tech.
0: Well, it's, it's an interesting story. Um, so I'm old enough that when I was in high school it didn't like computer science didn't really even occur to me as being a thing I would in, be interested in doing like I took one computer course the only computer course that the high school offered um but I I didn't you know this was before there was a thing called the internet where everybody could communicate and their pretty pictures and and all that so I never thought that that computer science would be a thing for me Um, So, I became a music teacher mostly because I couldn't come up with something else to do. I mean, I liked music and I liked children. So, that seemed like the way to go. So, I I, 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 I like
1: music, but I didn't like children. Actually, uh, so uh, I also taught school. Actually, I liked children. I taught middle school, but I didn't like the other teachers.
0: Yeah, yeah. So yeah, so I I was a music teacher for a while. Um, I left uh, the I was an elementary school music teacher. I left that profession when I had my son. um, And then I taught piano lessons at home for a while. Um, And then I became a church organist and choir director. Then around the same time that I was starting to lose interest in that area, I also got divorced and I needed another source of income. And I had no idea what I was going to do. And I thought, well, what am I good at? Well, I'm organized. So maybe I could be a professional organizer. So I started a professional organizing business. I did that for about a year, um, discovered I didn't like it at all. But that um, job led me to uh, being a support person in a tech startup. They It was a tech startup that worked with mobile phones. They needed somebody to keep track of all the mobile phones, make sure all the software was on it. And so while I was doing that, I thought, this software stuff looks kind of fun. you know. Maybe I'd like to be a software developer. So I started taking courses at night to do that. Um, and then very early on into that, the job dried up um, and I found myself needing another job. And I thought, I don't have enough development skills yet to even get an internship as a developer. So what else could I do? And so I started looking for like tech writing and Um, And then I discovered there was a position open for an intern as a quality assurance engineer. And I thought, oh, I think I can do that. I did a little bit of testing in my previous role. So, so I'll do that. So I went to the job. It was... um, Software that um it was voice recognition software on Blackberry phones. Uh, this is before Siri and and all of that. And um so I showed up on my first day, and the um, my supervisor gives me a test plan to work through. And so I start working through the test plan, and I notice something odd that happens, and I, oh, that's interesting. I want let me see if I can do that again. Yeah, that doesn't look right. Well, what happens if I click this button instead? And I'm clicking along and and then I said to myself, oh, I should really stop playing with this phone and get back to work. And then suddenly I realized this was my job. Like I was supposed to be playing with the phone. I was supposed to be figuring out what was going on. And it was like the heavens opened. And I was like, this is what I want to do for the rest of my life.
1: Very cool. I also started off, um, I won't go my whole story, but my first job in tech was uh, support for, in my case, I got out of grad school where I got a master's in composition where I learned how to use computers pretty well. I didn't know anything about programming, but I got a job at a company doing tech support for a company that made music software. Ooh. I knew I knew the MIDI. I knew how I knew how computers connected to musical devices really well. And then the rest I just kind of figured out.
0: Was it Finale?
1: No, no. no. Uh, fin- I owned Finale. Finale is based in the Midwest, I believe, still. I haven't had a copy in a year, but it was a company called Soft. Oh, okay. So this would have been a little ahead of your time because this was—they were mainly an OEM supplier, meaning when you in those days you bought a sound card for your computer because yep. computers didn't come with those, and right. when you bought a sound card, uh, it would come with some free software, and that's what we made.
0: Cool. Yeah, I know a lot of um, a lot of great software testers who were. French literature majors in college or history majors or psych majors.
1: Well, one thing to call out here is, this is off topic, but on topic for this conversation. For a long time, I was on, they took a break for a while, but I was on the alumni board for my university, School of Arts and Humanities, because we're talking about the value of this liberal arts education. And people think liberal arts, you'll never get a job. And I say college is not a vocational school. Mm-hmm. And what I learned there, what I, I learned so many things that apply directly to what I do every single day, but I didn't learn a skill. I learned, well, I learned life skills. I learned aspects of leadership. I learned how to problem solve. You know this from learning how to play a piece of music. What do you do? You break it down into little pieces. You, yeah. you take those little pieces and you isolate them to figure out why they're so damn hard. And then you you work on them, you kind of put it all back together, and then uh, you're done. And that's similar to how we do problem solving in tech. It's just different tools in
2: front of us. Now you, you you go to YouTube, you look at the video, and you just copy what they're doing with their hands.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's, that's pretty much it, Brent.
2: Yeah, that's... There you go. Music, future music majors, I have saved you four years.
1: But the, the thing is, and I'll go into this, we can uh, get, get to closing, but um, there's so much more to it. Like playing the right notes is such an infinitesimal, small part of being a musician.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: A lot of time we work really hard to make things look easy, but um sounds like you maybe were a, a piano major.
0: Uh, I was a voice. Well, I was oh. a music ed major with a okay. concentration in voice. Um, I did play the piano also. I So, you
1: know, this was- from choir, it's like. It's like in playing in ensembles to like listening. I think there's a parallel between listening and playing for for blend and pitch that is very similar to how we communicate with people at work. Yeah. And, you know, I, I played a lot of different woodwind instruments when I was playing saxophone in a jazz band. There are even subtle gestures you can make to get people to do something, get your section to do something different together. They just kind of pick up on those things. And that's kind of where I equate that to little bits of coaching, like a little, even a little head nod in a meeting will will make people feel like you're engaged. Like it helps with engagement. So anyway, all kinds of little parallels I pick up on Brent will get, it's just so much more than pressing the right notes.
0: Well and, and another thing that that really benefited me uh, from being an elementary school music teacher is that I learned how to explain things to very small children. And because of that, I feel that I'm adept at breaking things down into their simplest parts to then explain to other people including adults, including people who want to learn about testing.
1: You know what? That's I'm glad you brought that up because I've had people have mentioned that to me before that something that I do, I don't even realize it is I can I take people that have been in computers their whole life often have a difficult time explaining what some technically what something is. And yeah. often, you know, I got some really nice feedback from one of our finance VPs I said, Alan always does a really good job because I I track our, our a lot of our our cost spending. Mm -hmm. And say, Alan, I does a really good job explaining these things in a way that we understand. And it isn't that I'm trying to explain it to them in a way they understand. I'm trying to explain it to them in a way I
2: understand.
1: (laughs) But yeah, I think, I think, but there is something there learning or just having, you know, from either teaching private lessons or studying privately. When you have a good instructor, they can explain, they have multiple ways to explain the same thing. They have different things they can try, knowing that eventually one of them will resonate and you'll nail it. So I think those skills are all great too.
0: Well, and they say that if you want to really understand something, you ought to teach it to somebody else. And so that is one of the things that I'm doing with this book also. I mean, it's it's funny. A, a lot of the chapters of my book are based on blog posts that I've had over the years. And, and I actually go back and I look at my blog posts when I've forgotten how to do something. Like, so I'm like... <laughs> Thanks past me. Thanks for reminding me what, what I'm supposed to do when I run into this problem.
2: I think that's the purpose of blog posts is, is like, okay, now I can free all that memory from my brain yep. and, and bring in new things. And, and but it's interesting. Sorry. I'm going to go back to a thing with, so I've known Alan for ever. It seems, uh, so we've talked on the podcast. He and I are, in terms of Myers-Briggs, which is essentially an advanced horoscope,
1: mm-hmm. um,
2: but he and I are essentially the same type, but he has a bunch of talents that I don't have. It's not, I don't think it's associated, like he is an introvert. I am an introvert, but mm-hmm. Alan in particular, he can generate energy in, in a crowd of a, a, a community of like-minded folks. Mm-hmm. He's always been able to really do that. And one of the things I'm now actually hypothesizing is, I wonder, Ellen, if your music degree is where that came from, right? The, the ability to work with and collaborate with others, because that, in terms of like an orchestral uh, environment, I, I think both of you would likely argue that that's pretty critical.
1: Yeah, I, I do see the parallels there. What about you, Kristen? Definitely. And and I just want
0: to uh, mention, I think it was uh, most recent podcast, you were talking about the Myers-Briggs and saying that you were both INTPs. I am an INTJ.
1: So oh, a judger. Have- I see uh, what's going on now. <laughs> uh,
0: <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I think I, sometimes people are surprised that I'm an introvert because they, you know, I'm happy bubbly and hey everybody let's do this um but i think a lot of that comes from my music background i mean i did a little bit of musical theater and i you know took conducting courses and i you know i was able to lead and conduct a choir so i think that those leadership things probably come out of that
1: yeah i i I don't know about where you went to school but one of the things uh, and again I can do it all, but it exhausts me. I'm tired at the end. Yeah, but yeah. Uh, one of the things I hated the most out of school was um, recital hour. Like oh, sit there. Yeah. yeah. Okay. We called it convocation, but an hour a week, every week of performances of students playing in front of the entire music department. I would hate it when my teacher would say, you should sign up to play, for, play that at convocation next week. I go, no, I don't want to. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I, I hated that, too. And um, and even when, when I was a church organist, um, playing the organ is extremely difficult. It's more difficult than playing the piano because you have to play a keyboard with your feet as well. And um, it was every single week I was just so terrified. Um, so performance was never something that I enjoyed. So I'm 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 happy to, to speak publicly. I can do that. That that doesn't bother me at all. But like having to actually play notes. Or or sing while while everybody is listening. I would really prefer not to do that.
2: It's interesting for me in terms of in terms of that as it. So I will often remind people, introvert has n- really does not like. Um, it means shino- where you get your
1: energy from? Does right, shine
2: you- away if shine away from people or public speaking ability is a common symptom for like a voter. I don't even want to call it symptom. But it, it's often associated with introversion, but it is not a requirement. It, it's not a causal thing it, because I'm in introvert, doesn't mean I have, I don't have the ability to speak to people, but I will tell you one thing for me, like I am no longer uncomfortable talking in front of a crowd. I'll happily go in front of a crowd. No problem whatsoever, except for one condition where I am the center of attention. Now, it's not a, it's not a hypocrisy. Like when I'm when I'm going and talking in front of a crowd, I usually view it as whatever I'm presenting, that topic is the center of attention and I am just the conduit. But if I'm the center of attention, like put me in front of 200 people to celebrate a birthday, oh my god, I have a thousand things I need to do that day that's way higher priority, including like washing my dishes. I will run and hide for that environment. So, it, it, so we got to close, uh, but there is one thing I did want to share. It, so I didn't come from a music background. I came Loser. from... Yeah. I just have three tech degrees. I'm sorry. But I will just pass on. I, I have learned a way to hire testers in the face of schools don't. Now, it may not be a scalable way, but what I suggest in the past or what what I suggest, if you're going to go to school and you're you're looking specifically for testers, go talk to the department heads, go talk to the lab managers, and find the students in in the computer science lab that everyone goes to to debug.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: The ones that have a reputation for being excellent at debugging, those are testers.
1: Man, I love debugging. I freaking
2: love debugging. Uh, this, it, to me, it's a puzzle. This is what went wrong. Yeah. So when I was still was a tester, every time I got to send an email, hey, I was looking at your code to a developer. You have an off by one bug. Oh, yeah. Oh, uh, those just, I, I just, I, I adored those. Because I'm like, really, dude? Really? You got an <laughs> off by one bug? Like, really? <laughs> anyway yeah those were fun
1: let's close here uh Kristen Jackvoni.
0: yes jackvoney
1: super happy and excited to be on the podcast thank you for all that your book the complete software tester available on amazon or i guess other places where you can get books it's awesome i'm, I'm a big i'm a thank fan you. of it I, I like again me the big takeaways are I want to give it to developers. And there's lots of little short, it's just short snippets, but they're organized really well. It's, it's you know, I didn't read them all. I looked at, I, I kind of went through, looked at the headlines and did my little homework here. And, and uh, I learned a lot. It's like, yes, this is one of the most pragmatic, if not the most pragmatic testing book or comprehensive, comprehensive pragmatism. I don't know. Something like that. Anyway, super excited.
0: That's what I was going for. That's great. <laughs>
1: <laughs> All right. Well, it, it worked. It, it That resonated with me. Um, Thanks for being on the podcast. Really appreciate it.
2: Yes. Thank you, Kristen.
1: Yeah. Thanks for having me. That's great. Yeah. All right. Thanks everybody for listening. We'll see you later. Bye. Bye.